Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of coming to the Lord's table and pray now that you take the Word of God in this continued worship experience and shape our lives, Lord, as only you can by your outstretched arm. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a reenactment is a restatement of a significant event. For example, in 1863, in the war between the states, there was a battle the first three days of July called the Battle of Gettysburg, which was a pivotal point in that particular war. On the third day, uh, 13,000 men from the south charged a ridge at Pickett's Charge under the leadership of General Longstreet, who was under General Lee, and they were repulsed, and the day was saved for the Union, and the country was preserved. 50 years later, 1913, 53,000 men who were veterans of that particular battle gathered together at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. 23,000 on both sides had been either killed or been, become casualties. These survivors got together. Now they were 70 and 75 and 80. And, and so they reenacted uh, Pickett's Charge. And instead of running three quarters of a mile, they ran 100 yards or walked 100 yards. And these men went up the hill, and when they got to the hill, they shook hands. And President Woodrow Wilson gave an address about how the country's wounds had been healed and how we glory in the bravery of men and go forward as a nation. But it was a reenactment of a significant event that happened 50 years before. We're going to come to a, a passage of Scripture this morning in John 21, which deals with the reinstatement the encouragement, and the commissioning of the Apostle Peter. And I would suggest that John 21 is a reenactment, if you will, of two episodes in Peter's life that showed him the glory and grace and magnificence of Christ and his need for a Savior. So let me give you two snapshots, and then we'll go to John 21. In Luke chapter 5, this is the story. I'm going to give you two well-known episodic events in Peter's life. But in Luke chapter 5, it says this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Christ to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. The fishing was over, washing their nets. So get into one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night, and we've taken nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, you don't have to really read between the lines here to see what is really being said in Peter's heart. What he's saying is, Lord, I got this. I'm a fisherman. I've been on the front cover of Galilee Fisherman Digest three times in the last five years. I am, I, I know how to do this. You're a carpenter by trade. You don't get fishermen. I get it. But because you tell me to do it, I will do it. I'm doing it begrudgingly. It's labor intensive, but I'll do it. And this is what happens. It's a great story. 
But when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Astonished. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Peter gives a brief glimpse of the glory and majesty of Christ, and he's overwhelmed. The second snapshot. Matthew chapter 26, the night that Jesus is betrayed. The story that you know well if you've been to church very often. But this is the scripture. Starting in verse 30 of Matthew 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to his men, you will all fall away because of me this very night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter, Simon Peter, impetuous Peter, the leader of the men steps forward and he says, though all fall away from you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to Peter, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And he stepped forward and said, Lord, you know, these guys, they might, but not me. I'm the rock. See, in John chapter 1, when Jesus meets Peter, he says, your name is Simon, but you will be called Peter, which means the rock. What a, by the way, what, that's a cool nickname, you know, rock. How about your name shall be called, your name is Simon, but you shall be called chocolate pudding. It just doesn't work. You know, rock works. And Peter says, I'm the rock. I will never depart. Even if I have to die with you, Lord, I'm going to go to the wall with you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times today, Peter. And he did. So now we go to John 21. The reinstatement, reengagement of Peter and his commissioning. The Lord has already appeared to the disciples briefly two times resurrected Christ. And now he has an extended time with them where he has a tender dialogue and a difficult dialogue with Peter. Hear the scripture. Just as day was breaking, verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? It was early morning, couldn't see well, maybe a fog bank. It was early morning. And they answered him, no. And he said, then cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat and dragging the net 
full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about 100 yards off. So, so, so Peter couldn't see very well. John maybe had 20-20 vision. And John said, it's the Lord. And, and Peter put on his cloak. He'd been stripped down to just, you know, just his outer garments. And he, I don't know why he put on his cloak. You, know, you don't go swimming with a heavy cloak around you, but I think you want to be presentable to the Lord. And so he, he swims in 100 yards. The men bring in the fish, and this is what it says here. When they got onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire stop. The only other time the word charcoal fire is used is when Peter denies Jesus in the courtyard before a servant girl. He said they were standing beside a charcoal fire. So you know, charcoal fire, charcoal fire, reenactment. A charcoal fire with fish laid out on it and bread, and Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. People say, well, if you read people, people go into wild types of imagination. What does 153 mean? Divided by the Trinitarian nature of God, that's 51. That's the number of the Chicago, line, Chicago Bears' favorite linebackers. That means the Bears are going to win this year. No, people get all types of fan. You know what I think 153 means? They caught 153 fish. That's what it means. And this, the Bible says large fish. Not bait fish, large fish. And although there were so many, the net was about to be torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is an incredible passage. And so Jesus reinstates Peter, commissions him, renews Peter. By reenacting two significant episodes in Peter's life. An incredible, miraculous haul of fish. And three times asking him, do you love me? Just as Peter denied him three times. So I, read, I look at this text and I, I pull out some principles. Let me just give them to you. Number one, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? First question, do you love me more than these? He says, Peter, you know, there was a time in the upper room when you looked around with a sense of bravado and arrogance and disdain, and you said, Lord, these guys, these guys may melt away, but not me. I'm the rock. I will go to you to death. And Peter, you denied me. So he says, Peter, do you, are you still arrogant? Do you still say you love me more than these? I think he dropped his eyes down 
And he said in a bare whisper, Lord, you know that I love you. I'm not in the comparison game anymore. I'm not in the arrogant, disdainful mode anymore. You know I love you. He, he said, then feed my sheep. Simon, son of John, do, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then tend my lambs. A third time, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me? And Peter was grieved in his spirit because he asked him the third time, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You're God. You know my heart. Lord, you know I love you. Just feed my sheep. So I, I look at this, some principles here. The first is, in my relationship with the living God, if I'm to care for people around me and be the man God has called me to be, to be a leader in any shape, form, or fashion, whether it's an elder or a pastor or a community group leader or a business leader or a leader in my home, whatever, that the chief calling in my life is to love Christ to love him. And I was, I was thinking about this, this issue of, of loving the Lord, and I thought, you know, what, what's a good definition? And I, I came up with this, let me explain it. Love is a whole-personed movement or a whole-souled movement in the life of a believer, which leads to adoration, requisite emotions, thanksgiving, and obedience, all based upon biblical truth. Love is the whole-souled, whole-personed movement. Now, I say whole-person because the Gospels say, for example, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. The totality of all that you are is the whole-personed movement to the triune God in adoration, requisite emotions, thanksgiving and obedience, all based upon biblical truth. Jesus says in John 14, he who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. So obedience, but, but, but I, I, I say this, I said requisite emotions. In, in my study, I put chiefly joy. But sometimes the requisite emotion in loving God is brokenness over sin is grieving. In this passage, it says Peter was grieved in his heart because he was asked for the third time, do you love me, Simon, son of John? He was grieved. But, but requisite emotions. I think of the Lord's statements about the Pharisees in, in Luke chapter 11, verse 38 and following. This is what he says. He says that the Pharisees were astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner, and the Lord said to him, Now, now you Pharisees, you, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us, give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. He said, Worry about the inside. And then he says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe. Mint and rue and herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. So I, he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He says, you should tithe. But he says, but, but you don't, don't neglect justice and the love of God. So I looked at this and I said, you know, there's a link between loving God and pursuing justice. There's a link between loving God and protecting those who cannot protect themselves. There's a link between loving God and being 
unhinged by things that happen in the world that go against the character of God. And so I need to love God with everything that I am, my, my, my heart, my soul, my strength, my mind. And then I say requisite emotions. Let me explain that. Oftentimes, I was told as a young Christian, and this is true, when it's, but be careful. It says, don't worry about emotions. Just do the right thing. Now, you do the right thing. But, but if I read the Bible, emotions are central. They're, they're huge. We're to treasure God. We're to adore adore God. We're to be people who exalt the character of God. Those are not mind-numbing, innocuous words. They're passionate words. So, so sometimes I'm dry, I'm flat. I go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm dry and I'm flat. Bring your power in my life. I, I want to taste and see that you're good. I want to, have, I want to be a man who emotionally loves you with all my heart, soul, strength, and my mind. So, and it, it flows from biblical truth. So I, I'm pleading for the transformation that comes by the Holy Spirit as I'm conformed to the image of Christ. So, so the point number one is, in my relationship with the Lord, in any position of leadership or, just, or, or following Him as a disciple, I, I need to deal with this touchstone. Do I love the Lord my God in His triune glory? Am I acquainted? Am I studying? Do I love him? The whole soul, whole person movement and adoration, requisite emotion, thanksgiving and obedience based upon biblical truth. Number two, I've got to be a person who constantly understands grace. Fishing all night, nothing. They're coming in. Frustrated. There's someone on the shore, can't see who it is, and this stranger cries out, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. And I, I, here's what I think happened. I think some of them said, you got to be kidding me. Right side of the boat, we're in shallow water now. We're less than 100 yards from shore. I, I think Peter probably thought, this reminds me of a previous experience. When someone that I didn't think knew anything about fishing caused two boats to almost sink because of all the fish. So guys, give it a whirl. And they did. Voila, 153 big fish. And then John says, Peter, it's the Lord. Boom. And he goes in. I thought about fishermen. Sometimes, church, when we are in a situation where we say basically, it's okay, Lord, I've got this. That's a dangerous place to be. You say, you know, Lord, uh, uh, my marriage is pretty good right now. Eh, I've got this. My parenting, I, I've, my occupation, Lord, I'm, I'm board certified or I, I, I'm employee of the year or whatever. I've got this. And so when I, I read this, I say, even in our areas of giftedness, i.e. being a fisherman, Peter, I need the empowering grace of God. I, I need you, Lord. I need you every hour. There's never a point in my life when I'm not 
in incredible need. And then he has this dialogue, and I love this dialogue. Now, early in his ministry, Jesus looked at Peter, and he says, you're, you're Simon, but you're going to be Peter. You're the rock. Cool. But now that he's reinstating Peter, he takes him back to the beginning. See? Back to the beginning. Then call him Peter. He calls him what? Simon. Simon, son of John. Three times. Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. Takes him back to the beginnings. I, I, I need to go back to the beginnings. I need to go back to the grace and say, I am what I am by the grace of God. There's a man whose life I've studied some. He died in 1979. Uh, his, his, name, his name was uh, Louis Francis Albert Victor Nicholas Montbatten. He was British. Lord Montbatten. He was the Admiral of the Fleet. He was commander of the British troops in Southeast Asia in World War II. He was the last Viceroy of India. He was dubbed the perpetual leader of Burma. He was the first sea lord, and he was chairman of all NATO forces, Lord Montbatten. When you read his life, though, it's very interesting. Behind closed doors with his friends, he was just Dicky. That was his name, Dicky. Not Lord Montbatten, not First Lord of the Admiralty, not head of all NATO forces. He was just Dicky. I love his life. And I thought about a president named Dwight David Eisenhower, born in Denison, Texas, raised really in Kansas, but born in Texas, which gives Texans another reason to boast for no reason whatsoever. Dwight Eisenhower was one of six boys, no girls, raised in a very uh, economically challenged home. Grew up with these boys. He wanted to go to Annapolis, but he was too old to go to Annapolis as a first-year midshipman, so he went to West Point. He played football for West Point, didn't make the baseball team, which he said was the greatest disappointment of his life, and he tore his knee up, we think, in college football, tackling Jim Thorpe. If you don't know who Jim Thorpe is, look it up. You'll be impressed. Went on to great military fame, of course. He was the supreme commander of the Allied Forces in Europe, a five-star general, became president, two-term president, hugely popular. I keep on thinking about Dwight Eisenhower. I read several biographies of Eisenhower. He had these brothers, but he had one brother that became his closest confidant, Milton. Milton was his, the presidential chief advisor to Eisenhower for eight years. He at one time was president of Penn State University, also at one time was president of Kansas State, and was president at one time of Johns Hopkins, an incredibly bright and gifted man. And I'm sure, and the biographers say this, that in, 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 in the press room or in the Oval Office, he was president Eisenhower, but behind closed doors, he was Ike. Ike. Just Ike, my brother. Ike, what are you doing? That people say one reason Eisenhower was so successful is he continually opened himself up to criticism from contemporaries, especially Milton. And when Eisenhower was leaving the presidency, he was asked, who's the most qualified man in America to be president of the United States of America? And he said, my brother, Milton Eisenhower. What a compliment. 
And I thought, but you know, you would need to go back to the beginnings. I'm just Ike. I'm just Dickie Montbatten. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's taking Peter back to the beginning. He says, Peter, look at the grace of God. Remember, yeah, you're the rock. You're the rock. You're the leader. But remember, you're Simon. And so this, this man, this rock, wrote this book called 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, he makes this statement, verses 5 and 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may lift you up. And I think he wrote that. He was thinking about his life. He's thinking, don't ever forget, you're just Simon. You're, you're, you're Peter by the grace of God, but you're, you're just Simon, a man that the Lord has touched. And so that's, that's why we treat people with dignity because God is working in their lives. And one of our core values is something called an environment of grace, and we cover this from time to time, especially in the members' class. It says this, that Convinced of the absolute sovereignty of a holy God, we understand that nothing good happens in our midst and our ministry that is not the result of His grace, which is unmerited toward us in Christ. Therefore, or consequently, our ministry together must be characterized by the same grace in our response to one another. We're people who treat each other with dignity because of the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Christ that we have tasted. The third principle is this. In shepherding the lives of people in any position of leadership, it involves two focuses. He uses two words here. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep, which means to, to, to nourish them. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my lamps, which means to guide or direct. So, so in, in, in shepherding, we want, to, we want to feed and we want to guide so we, we feed, church, we feed them, we feed the people of God with the Word of God. This fisherman wrote 2 Peter, and in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. He's given us his very great and precious promises, okay, so that by them you may progressively be conformed to the image of Christ or become partakers of the divine nature since you've escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. He said, now, now, now you're, you're believers, so you've escaped the corruption. But, but how, how do you grow? He says you grow by continually knowing the promises of God that make you a partaker of the divine nature. You see, our growth in Christ is a pleading with God to transform us by conformity to Jesus. And, 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 and this knowledge, he talks about in 2 Peter 3.18, the last verse of this book. He says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be power and dominion forever and ever. You grow in grace, conformity to Christ, and knowledge grace and knowledge. And so I step back and I say, as we feed people in the church, we feed them the Word of God. We feed them truth. 
We don't go into all types of mystical whatevers and which you say, well, what about? They may be okay, but at best, they're a distant second best. The best is to do everything based upon the precious promises of God. And so we want to be biblical in what we say and do. There's a man named Richard Baxter. Wrote a book entitled The Reformed Pastor. Died in 1688. He's one of the Puritans. And, and he talks about the, the nature of oversight in shepherding people. And this is what he says. And I've got the quote up here. And I'll show it to you. It's right here. He says, We must insist chiefly upon the greatest, most certain, and most necessary truths and be more seldom and sparing upon the rest. If we can but teach Christ to our people, we shall teach them all. Get them well to heaven, and they will have knowledge enough. Many other things are desirable to be known, but this must be known or else our people are undone forever. They must know Christ. I confess, I think the word necessity should be the great disposer of a pastor's course of study and labor. If we were sufficient for everything, we might attempt everything and become encyclopedic. But life is short and we are dull. And eternal things are necessary. And the souls that depend on our teaching are precious. And I confess, necessity has conducted my ministry all these years. So he says, you teach Christ. You labor to have Christ before your people. You teach the Bible. And then he says, not only to feed the sheep, but to tend to them. And Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that in the areas of biblical truth, there are people in the church called elders or pastors or leaders, and they're to give oversight to your souls, and you're to listen to them, and they're to guide you. They're not only to feed you, but they're to guide you. And the, the place that you're guided in, as you stay in the Word, the green pastures and quiet waters, and it's good for your soul. And he said, if you, if, if you listen to the Bible and accept it and, and uh, adhere its teachings, then, then and as the people who teach it, it will be a joy to them. If not, they will groan because it's a burden and that they're groaning is of no advantage to you. And let me just say, I've been here for a long time, and the people of this church love the Bible. And it's a privilege to stand up and preach the Bible. And it's been an advantage to my soul to preach here. And I think of Paul in Philippians 1. He's in prison. He's, he's tired of being beaten. He's tired of being in prison. He's tired of being snake bit. He's gone the whole nine yards. He wants to go to heaven. And he says, though, to the church of Philippi, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But he said, if I'm going to go on living, it's going to be for your progress and your joy in the faith. And I thought, man, what a byline. Now, I'm, I'm going to hang around for your progress and your joy. I pray that for us. Pray that for me, that, that progress and joy in the faith, kingdom advancement and joy based upon the Word of God. So I, I, I come to this point that about a year and a half ago, I sat down with our elders and I said, I said guys, I said, we, we need to really do a better job of shepherding our people. 
So there are a lot of people here, and things happen, and we don't know about it. And, and, and we, need, we do this with sobriety because the Bible says in Hebrews 13 that we will give an account for the way we shepherd people. We treat them with dignity. We hold the word before them. We encourage them to grow in the Lord. We are going to be held accountable. And every man in the room said amen. And we did a, we did a study. We read two books. And Craig Harris has come back. And Craig is in charge of a shepherding ministry. We're going to enroll. And our, our shepherding ministry is going to happen primarily through small groups where you weep with those who weep and you laugh with those who laugh and you get to know each other and you walk with each other. But we want every person who's a member of this church to be either in a small group or to be in a shepherding network where we will be able to non-intrusively occasionally call you and say, do you have any prayer requests? How can I help you out? Are you, are you encouraged in the Lord? Is there something that I can, I can do to, to get you before the scripture, how can we shepherd you? Because we're, we're just to, to go forward with you for your progress and to join the faith. It's going to be non-intrusive. Uh, you don't have to eat supper with your elders every week. It, but they want, this is who we are. We have to give an account. We want to do a better job. We want to love you guys. And just, just, just this. Just, there, there are people here who are perpetual visitors. Join a local church. Come under the authority of a, a local church. Get involved in a local church. Cross the existential line when you said, I'm part of those people. I'm going to be with them. I'm going to weep with them and laugh with them and walk with them and just do it. Please, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, Trinitarian, Orthodox, local church. My example, I thought about the first hour I was preaching, but I was... We did some mission conferences, came back through Europe, stopped, and got off, and spent some time in France. And learned several French phrases like, I'll have one more crepe, please. You know that. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm in this little French village north of a place called Colmar, France. Beautiful village. Cobblestone streets, old, Sunday afternoon, vibrant people milling about. Just in Europe, people walk. It's amazing. They walk. And so I'm in this village, and there's this small cathedral, and on the side it said, this plaque in honor of our war dead and the great war, that's the World War I. And just line after line of French men from this small village who died. In World War I, France was bled to death. And then it had another plaque, and this plaque has the names of the men who died in World War II, fighting for the free France movement against Germany. And then there was a more recent plaque at the bottom. It had the U.S. flag on one side and a third armor division on the other. And it said, this plaque is placed in honor of the brave American soldiers from the third armor division who on the 28th of December, 1944, freed this village from the cruel yoke of Nazi tyranny. I'm standing there and I'm looking around. I wanted to turn to people and say, I am an American. My dad fought in World War II in Europe. I'm an American. They probably could tell because the fanny pack and the Citadel baseball cap, but I am an American, you know? You know, because in my heart, I existentially crossed a line when I was born and I was taught. I'm glad to be an American. I'm glad for the sacrifice of the third armor division. You need to cross the existential lines. Be part of something that's greater than yourself. Be part of something that's going to push you to 
conform to the reality of Jesus in a culture that desperately needs to hear the good news of the gospel and to see a Christian world and life view taken out. And so my, my two application statements very quickly would be this. For, we need to be fed, and we need to be fed the Word of God in such a fashion that my mind and my passions are wrapped up in the glory of Jesus. And secondly, I need to place myself in environments of grace where people can speak to me and care for me and love me, whether it's a men's group, women's group, community group, just, just get there. I need to continue to be reminded of the greatness of grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for tenderly reinstating Peter. We thank you for confronting him and not just kind of passing over his denial. You loved him enough to say three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? We thank you for reenacting in Peter's experience two episodes that showed him the power of grace and the need of grace. Speak to us. Teach us your way. Come, Holy Spirit. Help us to never think that our successes are due to us. Help us to always say that our successes ultimately are a gift from a loving God who gives us the strength to walk out of a room or to go to a job or to raise a child or to read a book. So change us, Lord, and move in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name.